Brrr, oh my god, it has been so cold and snowy in Madrid. I don't know if any of you guys, listeners, wherever you are around the world, have uh, seen the news, but we've had historic snowfall in the Spanish capital. Just yesterday, I think uh, in less than 24 hours, we had half a meter of snow, a couple of feet of snow. And, well, I've never seen anything like it. I never imagined Madrid like this. And uh, yesterday, me and Karina took a little walk around the centre, well, our neighbourhood, La Latina. I know where people skiing through the streets, snowboarding, snowmen everywhere. Just incredible. And basically, the whole city was completely paralysed by this snowstorm called Filomena. And, uh, well, it basically pedestrianised the whole city. Madrid looked absolutely beautiful with no traffic, no cars no taxis no buses no nothing and well just a white winter wonderland that madrid was transformed into absolutely amazing that was yesterday today it's slowly starting to melt away pretty treacherous outside uh, but blue skies again if you haven't already go and check out uh, all of the photos and videos i made yesterday of uh, madrid in this thick snow and you can do that on instagram and facebook if you'd like to see madrid like you've never seen it before seriously absolutely incredible go and check out the when in spain instagram which is when in spain one the handle on instagram and you can find uh, more photos and videos on the when in spain facebook page and facebook group as well and well basically just google when in spain podcast and you will find all of the associated when in spain social media hangouts i guess you would call them anyway hola y bienvenidos to a new episode of the when in spain podcast Enough of snow. We're not talking about snow in this episode. We're actually talking about buying property in Spain. Now, this has probably been one of the most requested episodes ever. Lots of people asking me to put together an episode about buying property in Spain. And so finally got round to doing it. So if you're planning to buy a property in Spain, or maybe it's one of those future ambitions to own your dream Spanish home, whatever the case, this episode will give you a, I hope, detailed insight into to buying a house or an apartment in Spain, packed with practical advice. It's a really meaty subject. I think we've managed to include pretty much almost everything you need to know. But as I said, it's a very complex subject. And that's why I decided to enlist Spanish property consultant Felix Joseph, who's going to be sharing his expert advice in this episode. Felix runs his own property consultancy on the Costa del Sol called Property Under One Roof. He's also written a book called How to Buy Property in Spain, Everything They Won't Tell You about buying property in Spain, which you can find on Amazon, by the way. So just a bit about Felix Joseph. Felix first caught the property bug at quite a young age when his father unfurled the plans for a house that he was going to buy in his native Caribbean. Felix studied an economics degree and then worked in IT for 15 years before investing in property in the UK and building up his own property portfolio, which allowed him to semi-retire in Spain with his family. So in 2002, he left IT 
IT to set up his real estate company called Property Under One Roof. And then he moved to Spain in 2006. So he's been here quite a while. And when he moved to Spain, he pivoted into property consultancy, which is what he does now. And he offers a holistic service for people from outside Spain looking to buy. So in the episode, we're going to be talking about the paperwork you need to get in order uh, to be ready to buy a property in Spain, including visas. We talk a bit about the golden visa scheme as well. We're going to be talking about if now is a good time to buy property in Spain or not, uh, especially in light of the situation with COVID-19 and, uh, well, for British citizens, Brexit. So we're going to be talking about COVID and Brexit, the C word and the B word. We're going to be looking at the costs associated with buying in Spain, the property purchasing process, legal issues that are involved, uh, mortgages and financing options for buying property, taxes. And of course, Felix is going to be sharing really sage advice and uh, well, what pitfalls to watch out for when you're buying in Spain. Plus, at the end of the episode, we're going to run through a few questions that When in Spain listeners sent in. So if you did send in a question to me via Instagram or Facebook, a big thank you to you guys uh, for that. And hopefully we manage to answer any queries that you have. Before we dive into the interview with Felix, I'd just like to say a very quick gracias to new and returning When in Spain patrons. So a humongous gracias to Eric Warren for increasing his pledge. A uh, big thank you to Susan Lampert for signing up to become a yearly patron of the show. And also a big thank you to Valerie Andrus, who also signed up to become a yearly patron of the show. So if you also listen and enjoy this podcast, please do consider, if you can, signing up to support me and the work I do in putting the show together and bringing it to you guys the listeners and you can do that at patreon.com forward slash when in spain okay enough of that i'll hand us over to me talking to felix joseph all about buying property in spain felix thank you for joining me on the when in spain podcast today absolute pleasure paul thank you so much for inviting me Let's get into the nuts and bolts things. We've got quite a bit to get through. The first question I wanted to put to you is the initial paperwork that someone would need before they can even consider, you know, starting the process of buying in Spain, um, before they can even really start looking and putting offers in. Um, you need your NIE number, which is like your fiscal number, which you need to apply for. You don't necessarily have to be a resident to get one of those, though, do you? No, not at all. Um, like you said, it's effectively the equivalent of a social security number. Um, you don't have to be a Spanish resident at all, but they do need it, obviously, because they want to know, like all governments do, who you are, have proof of who you are, and most importantly, how they can tax you. Really, the easiest way to get an EA is you need to be in Spain to do that. A NIE, by the way, just in case listeners are wondering, it's N-I-E. It's uh, an acronym for, I can't remember what it stands for, no? Numero de identificación something, I can't remember. If you want to or if you can, which obviously this world, you know, this year's events have made completely more complicated than it used to be, um, you would want to come over to Spain, preferably on one of your visits, you know, one of the many visits you'll come over in the process of buying a property um, and sort that out. It doesn't take very long. It used to be a lot um, quicker. The laws have changed a little bit, and now there seems to be a bit more of a, a time lag because they're now becoming more efficient, believe it or not, and um, you have to book an appointment. So you probably need a two-week period of being here 
in order to go to the commissariat de policia and register. So basically the police office, national police office, register for one. They'll give you an appointment to come back with the documents you need. And then you can go back and do it yourself. A lot of these uh, police officers speak very good English and you don't necessarily need a translator. If not, then you have to do one from the UK. But you would need a power of attorney, a, a postile and to go to the Spanish embassy in the UK, which is definitely doable, but just a lot more drawn out honestly if you come over to spain it's a lot quicker and a lot cheaper to come over and do the process here even if you flew over um applied for it and then flew back for your appointment it'd probably still be much easier than doing it you know um with a power of attorney and uh, the spanish embassy um you know and a deal. the other way people can get the ball rolling is to apply for a what they call a golden visa right um i know it exists in portugal i had a question from a listener about this this is when you invest a minimum of half a million euros in a property purchase, which will also get you on track to getting an EA and also more than just an EA will actually grant you a visa to reside in Spain indefinitely. Absolutely. The golden visa thing for us in the real estate um, field is a little bit controversial because when it first came out, they had the amount you needed to invest in Spain in line with countries like Portugal, um, which is around, you know, between 160 and 200,000 euros. Um, And then they made a decision to make it half a million euros, which, as you can imagine, has a significant change. Effectively, what they're saying, as you can imagine, is we want higher net worth people to you know be able you have to be a high net worth candidate to be able to apply for this i understand why governments would make that kind of decision but you know it's um it, it reduced its ability you know for i would say our more normal customers and clients to apply through the gold, golden visa you get access to you know a lot of the um aspects of you know being a, a limited resident with a golden visa and as you said it's um with, with spain it's five that assuming five hundred thousand euros of investment but the good thing is it doesn't have to be in one property. So it can be 500,000 euros worth of investment. So you could, for example, buy a family home and invest into rental properties and it would work out exactly the same. That's the good side. The bad side is you need 500,000 euros to invest. You need half a million euros to get a golden visa. That can be across several properties if you wanted. Yeah, absolutely. We're going to get into the nuts and bolts of the buying process and obviously pitfalls and things to look out for in a little bit. The next question I've got for you is talking, we can't really not talk about COVID, unfortunately. In your opinion, is now a good time to buy in Spain or are there more risks involved at the moment? Is the market more volatile? Um, Some people, people I know here in Madrid have said, oh, have you noticed prices are dropping a lot? So I appreciate nobody wants to talk about COVID. We are all suffering from severe COVID fatigue. But as you pointed out, it's a part of reality and ignoring reality doesn't tend to work out very well on any level, but definitely not in terms of investment. So the first thing I want to say is I have a massive frustration with regards to positive mindsets in terms of economic data. And I'll explain that very quickly for you. So as you know, my, my first trade was that of an economist. So I I start to take um, you know my approach to things through that lens. And I get why business people you know have a need to put a positive spin on so many things. But yeah. I do get so frustrated when I'm you know, going through my Facebook, which is my, primarily populated, my Facebook and LinkedIn with business people who are really busy talking about this V-shaped curve, frankly, in my opinion, based on their economic data, because they want it to. We're going <laughs> to shut down the world's economy for the best part of 12 months. Nothing's seen anything like it possibly since the 1920s depression of America. But we're going to bounce right back up like a rubber ball because I'm positive minded. And that's what I think is going to happen. You know, I don't think the economic data suggests that. I don't think many of the countries, when discussing the possibility of what's going to happen to the economies around the world, suggest that either. 
the reason I mention that is because in terms of is now a good time to buy, it actually still depends on what you what type of property you're looking for in its use. But I think I wanted to start out by pointing out that I do think there is definitely going to be a massive economic contraction. And for myself, because I'm still an investor, as I, you know, I pointed out, I started out um, investing for myself and, you know, running a property company in the UK. I'm looking at the market very cautiously with the expectations of prices to go down more. So definitely now is a good time to buy. But personally, as an investor, this is what I'm going to be doing myself. I'm looking at the market with the expectation of prices to go down more because I don't think that this V-shaped recovery that people are sort of trying to will into existence is backed up by economic data. And as I live through the economic, the Great Recession of 2008, like that's not what happened. It literally, we didn't turn a corner here until probably 2015. We went into recession in 2007. Um, Zapatero, who was the um, prime minister at the time, he, you know, he literally ignored it for a year and refused to accept it was happening. And he didn't declare it until late 2008. But those of us working in the industry knew we were in a recession in 2007 and we didn't come out of it to 2015. So I think there's going to be a sustained period of prices dropping. It's hard to say precisely, of course, but a sustained period. We're talking probably you know, several years four or five years now again i don't have a crystal ball and i did point out that when i graduated i came out into a massive recession where being an economist was a completely useless because we failed to predict it so i'm not saying that i know for <laughs> sure but what i will say is i've been through a few recessions um and at least two you know while i was investing in property and helping other people do it i don't see how the economic circumstances surrounding what's happening now doesn't lead to uh, at least four or five years of you know economic difficulty which if there's economic my, my main premise is if people on an everyday basis are you know struggling financially businesses are struggling financially businesses are closing down these are the things that push what happens in the economy and, and those are the things that are going to affect the you know the price of people's um, properties through through trickle down mechanisms i know for example in 2008 a lot of people who had holiday homes the moment they started having financial troubles personally at home, which, for example, put in jeopardy their home where they lived in, they had to make a decision as to, well, which of these two properties made more sense to pay for? Mm. And that's what started to run on the, you know, for at least from the British side, obviously, loads of people from different parts of, you know, Europe and the world invest in Spain. But just for my, my core market, I know for sure from the Brits, it was uncertainty and economic stress or economic problems at home, which basically had led them to do the logical thing, which is to work out what can I prune from what I need to spend. And the Spanish home all of a sudden wasn't that important. I think what's going to happen here is people are going to have the same kind of issues. They'll be looking at their businesses, you know, wondering if the business is still viable. Maybe they've lost their job a few years after they bought their Spanish dream home and they're looking at their bills and working what, you know, I used to actually be um, you know, a debt doctor. I used to help people do IVAs. So I know that if you came to me or still come to me and say, I've just lost my job, I've got all these bills, I don't want to go bankrupt, what do I do? I'm going to talk about what we need to prune out of, you know, your um, expenditures. Looking under our uh, multi-listing system, I see property prices going down and I see a lot of people pushing desperately to sell properties um, before prices fall further. Um, the few people we've had out here viewing, they came here with what I would call post-COVID recession prices in mind. So they would look at a property for 100,000 euros and go, yep, yeah, it's probably worth 100,000 euros now. But after this recession's over, I'll be lucky if it's worth 70. And that's what I'm going to offer you. And I've had that a handful of times just this year. And, and that's at the start of the recession that hasn't even really kicked off yet. I think 
And I'm sorry to give a beating to all the sellers. Um, but, you know, I, I, my job as a property consultant is to just, you know, tell the truth and help people through the process. I think that as frustrating as their opinions were, I think they were right. You know, I know some of the sellers were angry, some of the other agents were angry, but I think they were right. As an economist, that's the way I would approach it. And my one caveat to that, which is a really important caveat, is and some advice I gave um, a family who were looking around, I think it was April, March. Now, they were lifestyle buyers. They had friends in the area. They were buying a 500,000 euro villa. Everything of that kind of stature is an investment, but it was primarily for personal use and for lifestyle. They worked very hard in the UK. They wanted to you know, spend a lot of time here in Spain with their children. What we always say is that negative equity doesn't affect you unless you want to sell. OK, you might want to get the best deal um, possible. But from their perspective, where it was like only a handful of properties genuinely left on this particular urbanization where they had friends. My advice was, look, if this is really about your lifestyle and, you know, the benefits you can get from coming over to Spain and enjoying the property. You know, if you know that you're not going to want to even think about selling this property for 10, 15 years, which is pretty much what we consider the business cycle and the property cycle to be then you can buy it now for 500,000 euros it might drop down in value to 400,000 euros in five years but it will be back up to 650,000 euros in 15 and that whole period of time would have made no difference to you because you weren't trying to sell why you're buying is super important because I won't advise anybody based on the experiences and and the embellishment to my life of having a Spanish property and being here obviously I live here but even visiting here and having my family my friends and my relatives visit here to not do that based on an economic decision which isn't going to make any difference to them because they were never going to sell the property anyway if you find the exact right property and this is exactly what you need don't miss out on it and end up buying something that isn't right and isn't exactly what you wanted you know just because you're waiting for the prices to go down that's to me the wrong decision think about whether you were in it for the short medium term or the long term really important to think about in terms of value of property and what they're what it's going to do let's talk uh, about another how can i put it nightmare situation possibly brexit for the, the listeners from the uk is brexit something to be worried about for buying in spain you said the b word <laughs> oh no drop the b bomb i didn't want to but hey we've, we've done the c word so we might as well do the b word <laughs> There was me thinking I was going to be the naughtiest one on this podcast. Ah, again, it's such an interesting scenario. What I have seen spoken nationally and locally, uh, for example, you know, by um, the head of Andalusia and also my own local mayor, is that, you know, this very simple view that Spain didn't ask for Brexit, didn't initiate Brexit, and they don't want or hold any animosity towards the Brits. They, you know, have a long, long relationship with the UK with UK tourists and UK investors. And, you know, they don't want anything to change as much as possible. You know, obviously they're still within the EU, but the actual, the outlook and their approach, you know, their, their view and their feeling towards the Brits, um, it's absolutely the same. Effectively, they are going to help to keep things as normal as possible. And I think they're going to try their best to make sure that as little as possible changes. You can see the Spanish government are doing as much as they can to minimise the impact or any negative impact that Brexit has on their relationship with the Brits who want to come out here as tourists or come to Spain as, as investors. Let's talk a bit about breakdown of the costs of buying a property in Spain. Hidden cost. When we watch that TV programme, A Place in the Sun, and they're like, oh, you can get this lovely little villa for 250,000 euros. But, you know, they don't talk about all of the other little hidden costs and taxes and legal fees and all of this kind of thing. Could you just break it down for us in sort of layman's terms? You see the ticket price of a house. What else are you going to have to, to pay? And sort of more or less, how much would it be? 
I created a document a few years ago, and the document was entitled Why It's Impossible for You to Pay 10% Closing Costs When You Buy a Property in Spain. I'll start off by saying the closing costs, as we call them, as you said, the taxes and additional um, costs that you pay over and above the actual purchase price of a property are astoundingly high. Um, when I arrived here in Spain in 2006, it was 15%, which is what you would budget. So I always use the simplest of numbers. So if you were buying a property for 100,000 euros and that was the price of the property that was going to go to the seller, you would need another 15,000 euros to pay the government taxes, notary, land registry, and all your other things that you would need to do that whole process safely. Now that has changed recently because two or three years ago, the government brought in a new law which stopped some of the banks. We know our friends, the banks um, <laughs> all over the world tend to have you know, somewhat dubious practices. And they were charging things to the recipients of mortgage loans that really weren't their responsibility. I some see. of the insurances and some of the taxes. So that has gone down. But you're still going to need probably between 13 to 15 percent of the purchase price for property just as you said, in order to pay the taxes and the other things you need to pay to buy that property. It does differ by region, by the way, but I know we haven't got all day. Pretty much the, the main difference is the government tax when you buy a property. Now, if you're buying what we call a resale property, so for example, if I own the property and I sell it to you, then you'll pay most places 8%, although in some regions it is 10 Um, And then on top of that, after you've paid that, which is the biggest cost you're going to have. What they call like a property transfer tax. Absolutely. So on a, a resale property, you know, something that you bought from someone which previously owned, where I'm in Andalusia, a lot of Spain, that's 8%. Now, we use the public notary system here in Spain. You cannot buy a property without using the public notary system. You're going to need to probably budget about 1% for the notary. I would still go with, although I know it's a bit less, 1% for, you know, um, the land registry. I personally won't engage with helping somebody to buy a property unless they have proper legal representation, not a historian, not being helped by the estate agent, but um, a lawyer who has public indemnity with the Law Society of Spain. That is going to cost you a minimum of 1% in most cases, going up to 2%. If you need a mortgage, you're potentially going to pay your mortgage broker, maybe broker excuse me, another 1% for helping you to get the best mortgage that suits your circumstances. You know, as I said, if you want to use somebody to help tie all of these things together, and marshal it all, it could be another 1% to your property consultant. So even if you're buying a resales property, you're probably still looking at about the best part of 13% of the purchase price. And the difference between a resales and a new build, which is something that is just created by the developer and you'll be the first owner of, is, as you said, the transfer tax to the government is more like um, an IVA and it's basically 10%. So if you're buying a new build, you take everything that I've just given you, which adds up to 13%, and you add another 2% to it because the government wants 2% more because you're buying a brand new property. That's a kind of flat rate. If you're buying a new build property, no one's lived in it before, that is a, a 10% property transfer tax. Absolutely. I would have thought it'd been the other way around, sort of like as an incentive to buy up all these new build properties that aren't selling. I agree with you on that one. I, I thought they should have been more of an incentive to help people buy new builds. But I think the idea is, you know, you pay a premium for the fact that it's brand new and never been lived in as opposed to secondhand. And talking about agent fees, you said about estate agents is that something to be wary of but i've heard a few horror stories about estate agents and their the fees that they charge but the most important thing as a buyer to remember about estate agents fees is that in most instances you don't pay them the seller pays them the seller pays the the estate agents fees you should not be asked to pay anything to an agent so with that 100,000 euro property you're buying, we've already discussed that as it's a, um, a, excuse me, a secondhand property, you'll probably have to find about 13% 
maybe 12 if you're lucky, in, you know, additional costs to pay for it. But the estate agent gets paid by the seller. So when the seller receives and all of the seller receives is 100,000 euros for it, most estate agents will charge 5%. So he will pay 5%, 5,000 to the estate agent. And the seller receives 95, he pays 5,000 to the uh, estate agent. And the estate agent is nothing to do with you. More generally, talking about financing a property purchase in Spain, obviously, if you're lucky enough to have the cash, not really a worry. But if we're talking about mortgages, overseas buyers versus residents or maybe Spanish citizens, there is a kind of disparity. There is a difference. If you're not a, a resident or a Spanish citizen, you will only be able to borrow at a, a, at a lower rate and you'll probably need a bigger deposit. Is that right? That is 100% true. And if you don't mind, I, w- I would like to just take a quick step back and explain why. It would seem, uh, um, you know, maybe fair or equitable to, you know, offer the same mortgage rate to absolutely everybody, obviously based on their financial circumstances. So the point being, let's say you're an American or an English person or Spaniard and you all earned 60,000 euros, you know, a year, it would seem that it would be fair to offer you all the same mortgage rate. But the problem really for banks, and I do respect this, you know, of of all the things I criticise banks for, and there are many, I respect this aspect is that when banks lend you money, it's really all about risk. And the the risk comes in two parts. Obviously, there's the risk of, you know, the property. That's why the the loan is secured against the property. We understand that. So they get what they call a first charge against the property. And that's, you know, what gives them the ability and the power to repossess the property from you if you don't make payments on your loan. But then there is also another risk of their ability to um, contact you and, you know, for want of a better word, chase you or prosecute you if you go delinquent and stop paying your loan. So the reality is if you're from Spain and you pay your taxes in Spain and you work in Spain, they have far more power to chase you up, find out what's going on about your loan payments and, you know, even in, enter into some kind of agreement, which unfortunately they don't like to do here. They're not famous for doing that here. Or at least, you know, chase you up and, and follow whatever legal remedies they have with regards to the fact that, you know, your loan is now um, delinquent. Whereas if you're in America or England, it's much harder. So I just wanted to lay that out as the understanding of the kind of logic for why. So you are going to have to expect to borrow a higher rate and be asked for a, a bigger deposit also. Absolutely. So what, what, what we're normally looking at is if you are a Spanish resident and, you know, I I know that you get this. There are so many kind of idiosyncrasies (laughs) here in Spain. (laughs) So I'm trying to be honest and helpful without throwing too many of them into blindside people. But what I will say is this, rightly or wrongly, Spanish resident, um, you know, your residencia doesn't always cut it. But what I tend to know is if you're born in Spain in terms of what you can do financially seems to be a lot more powerful than if you migrate to Spain. The key difference is whether you I mean, obviously, there will be some people who are not from Spain, but have taken Spanish citizenship and um, maybe married a, a Spanish citizen. Then that puts you on an equal par with any other Spaniard. But what we're saying is, if you're a resident or you're buying from overseas, you're not a resident, then you're going to be you're going to be stung a little bit more. Residents will get between 80 and 100 percent of the purchase price of a property. So, again, my 100,000 euro um, example, they will either lend you up to 80,000 euros. Some banks, depending on the circumstances, usually their own toxic stocks. So if the bank is selling one of its own repossessions, obviously they have an incentive to want to get rid of it. So they might lend you up to 100 percent so the full hundred thousand euros of the purchase price of that property if you're a resident so all you'll have to find in that instance the 13 odd percent closing costs um whereas for non-residents you're probably looking at about now 
60%. Bain had such a good relationship with the UK. Um, a few years ago, before Brexit, I was getting UK residents up to 83, sometimes even 90%. But since the you know announcement of Brexit, it went to 70. And now, realistically, you're probably looking at a maximum of a 60% loan. So again, buying a 100,000 euro property, um, if you're from the UK or America or Canada, um, Germany, you're, you know, you're looking at getting about 60,000 euros lent to you as a loan, which means you're going to need the 40,000 euros from your own pocket or from other sources as your deposit and the additional 13,000 euros that you're going to need to pay to the government and the mortgage broker, the lawyer as your closing costs. The other question is something that's super important to check out as well uh, when you buy is that if there's any debt that's related to a property or tied to a property. When you buy that property, that debt becomes yours, basically. It passes to the new owner. So you've got to be super careful to make sure there's no debt that's tied to a property before you buy it. Otherwise, you're going to be saddled with that. Absolutely correct. And it's one of the reasons why I won't work with somebody who won't employ a solicitor. So how does someone go around, go go about finding if there's any debt connected to a property? You have to hire a lawyer and they do the relevant background checks. It is exactly that. And it's like anything, you know, I'm sure that a very astute person could find that the, the um, relevant registers and do the checks themselves. It's one of those things that I just wouldn't trust. I have a, a very good friend who's a lawyer, you know, personal friend as well as um, business relationship. And we did a deal, um, admittedly, it was maybe a year or so ago with a very astute guy who was selling the property and handled his own legals. And my lawyer friend said to me, you know, this guy, he really doesn't appreciate that if I wanted to, I could tie him up in circles and make this sale, you know, work against him massively. Because uh-huh. that's why you hire a specialist in anything. I personally strongly recommend you hire a person who A, is a specialist in it and is trained in it, B, does it all the time. So has that repeat, you know, knowledge and, and experience and connections, relationships to be able to get the right information and get it quickly. And most importantly, lastly, has 20 million pounds worth of um, public indemnity insurance. If they make a mistake, you actually have somewhere you can go and make a claim because they you know, were meant to be able to do those things right. And you didn't plan to buy 100,000 property with three million pounds worth of debt on it. Oh my God, can you imagine? <laughs> so you could counterclaim. So that's a scary thought, isn't it? That's good advice. So it's super important. Don't buy a property with loads of debt burdened on it because it will become your <laughs> Your dream life in Spain will very quickly turn into your nightmare in Spain. Just quickly, what would your advice be for actually finding a property? I mean, where should people look? Should people just look in the Spanish equivalent of high street estate agencies? There are obviously websites as well, Idealista and I don't know, Foto Casa and lots of other places. But I've also heard stories in fact, I know someone who did it and luckily did it successfully, where kind of word of mouth, like, you know, you get these old, older generation of people who I suppose traditionally just sort of bought and sold in between individuals. So they put a little you know, notice in their window saying for sale and you go and knock on their door and you kind of negotiate a price. And then, of course, you've got to get the your lawyer and notary involved and everything else. But I've heard a few stories of people doing that as well. Where should people be looking? My answer to that is all of the above. You know, what you really need to do is saturate yourself in your Spanish ownership dream, even as an investor or as a lifestyle buyer. Absolutely, word of mouth is super powerful. But again, the issue with word of mouth, I suppose, is if you're not dealing with professionals, you just have to be that little bit more cautious. If you're dealing with somebody, for example, who isn't a state agent, then, you know, you want to make sure that, again, you have your lawyer in place to make sure that 
you know, the place has been checked out and the, the actual sale you're doing is above board and legal. You know, you don't want to you know, transfer money to somebody, even as a reservation fee or um, exchange of private contracts and then find out that it wasn't done correctly and you've lost your money. Or it wasn't even their property to start with. Thank you. That was the one I missed. No, I mean, just to put that into context, my, my girlfriend's brother about, I think about four years ago, uh, bought a, a three bed apartment here in Madrid. And that's how he did it. Word of mouth or he saw a, like a private advert on um, on the internet or in, I don't know someone with a notice hanging off the balcony and he went and chatted to them he liked the place it was a it was a fixer-upper but he got it all checked out and he got the lawyer and notary involved and, and he's had no problems he's super happy with it and he didn't didn't even use a, an estate agent at all so I don't know I guess sometimes it can work out okay that way. And the funny thing about here in Spain is that unlike for example America you know there are no exams to pass and there is no license to be a realtor here in Spain. So property yeah. professional is a very loose term at the best. Absolutely. Because, I mean, that that just never happens in the UK. I mean, all properties basically go through some kind of estate agent. I mean, but in Spain, I think it's kind of quite important to say that word of mouth still quite powerful, whether you're renting or you're buying. There's a lot, a lot of word of mouth still goes on here. You're absolutely right. Spain is very much a who you know economy. A lot of what I have to do in order to get the best deals for my investors is build relationships with people, get to know people, um, to find the best you know opportunities and the best deals, the best mortgage rates. A lot of it is who you know. And what's wonderful about it, particularly in Andalusia, is you know bank managers will go out for a coffee with you. So it isn't like all about being frumpy and sitting in offices. <laughs> Let's run through the process then. Let's imagine you found your dream Spanish property. Obviously, you're going to make an offer. You will initially do that verbally, directly with the vendor, I assume, or, or through the agent. And then you have to sign a preliminary contract, I believe. Well, yes, absolutely. What I will say is I'm a big fan of reservation contracts. And I think I picked this up more from the UK. Yeah. And they do exist here in Spain. So if someone finds a property they want to buy, for me, the most important contract for me is what we call a reservation contract. Again, I'm not going to lie. I can't remember the, the full Spanish term for it. But, but in terms of process, effectively, well, your reservation is where you ask the seller to take the property off the market. No, no, we're serious. We actually like it. Not like the other 20 people who came in the last three months. Um, and we need to do some more um, some more research about your property, exactly your property, and if we can buy it. So we want yeah. you to take it off the market for 30 days while we do that. That's super important. Now, it's it's in you know it's normal here in Spain. Where I'm in Andalusia, normally you'll be looking at paying six thousand euros in order for the seller to agree to do that. It doesn't have to be six thousand euros. I negotiated a contract with some people um, recently where they only paid three thousand. I was a bank repossession specialist for no, a number of years, part of the Spanish Bank Repossession Collective, and some of the banks would only accept five hundred euros, wouldn't accept a penny more for legal reasons in order to take the property off the market, so that you know. As we will understand, once it's you know taken off the market, they can't sell it to anybody else for that 30-day period while you do that initial research. And what's super important about that is, as you pointed out, you know, I'm so glad you did. The first thing you do when you make that reservation is your lawyer finds out if they own the thing, right? <laughs> and effectively, what happens? The lawyer does a couple of you know what we call preliminary checks at that at that reservation stage. Now, the reason for me that is so important is because it's you know nobody wants to lose money, but let's just say it's you're buying a 500,000 euro villa. 6,000 euros is a normal amount of money to pay while you have those checks done. But most yeah. importantly, forget anything that you're, because if obviously your lawyer finds that the other person doesn't own it, or for example, doesn't have a license first occupation or anything wrong with it, that money comes back to you because that's what it was. It was a reservation while I did the checks to find out if this is a suitable property to buy. Whereas if your circumstances change, 
let's say that, you know, you were, you know, you had the money to buy the property and then something happened to you um, at that change of financial circumstances or you were diagnosed with something and you realised that you'd no longer be able to move to Spain, you will forfeit that 6,000 euros. But if you had gone straight to the exchange at private contract, the contractor privado, the compravento, then you actually would have forfeited 10% of that property price. So with a 500,000 euro villa, and a lot of estate agents try and do this. And this is one of the things that as a property consultant, I get straight in with lawyers and, and other property agents. No, my client is not signing an exchange of private contracts. First, we're going to reserve and we're going to get a few things in order, check, check a few things out and get a few things in order on our side to make sure that we can go forward. And once we are confident that we can go forward and nothing will change, then we will do the second stage, which is the exchange at private contract. It's, it's six grand plays 50 grand. Yeah, that's really good advice. I didn't know that. That gives you time to arrange any mortgage that you require. I guess also important to point out is to get a survey done on the property. I'm imagining that that's a kind of another thing which is don't think twice about. Always get a thorough survey done on the property as well. I'm so glad you made those two points. So you're absolutely right. In regards to what your lawyers check in with regards to the seller's circumstances and, you know, right to sell the property, last of first occupation. You want to use that time to get yourself a decision in principle at the very least, if not, you know, some kind of formal offer. So if you are getting mortgage finance again, and this is my biggest bugbear, so I really have to labor this. I've had more than one occasion where someone has paid 10 percent to exchange at private contracts on the property, then gone to a mortgage broker or bank to get a mortgage, then found out they're not eligible for a mortgage and lost that 10 percent. And it's happened so many times. It was one of the driving forces behind me writing the book. You're absolutely right. For me, the most important thing about the reservation is the things that you do on your side to make sure that you won't have to pull out of this deal before you put down 10% of the cost. And arranging a survey, that's, I imagine, pretty easy to do. Yes, it is. The thing about the surveys is you can definitely arrange your own. But the great thing about, um, just like in the UK, is if you're using bank finance, then the bank will send out a valuer and do a survey for you. In the UK, you know, when I was an investor, we usually go with the bank survey, pretty much because survey companies are independent surveyors. You know, in the UK, they use RIC surveyors and then they get put on a panel of banks. So they're not actually usually um, employees of the bank. They're independent. So effectively, the company that you would pay to do the survey is exactly the same one the bank pays. The only difference is if you've applied for a mortgage, you get charged a lot less, less than half of what the exact same survey company would charge you than if you'd employed them yourself. So same company, same survey. But if you allow the bank to do it as part of the mortgage application, the cost to you is less than half. So if you're getting a mortgage, then, you know, do it as part of the bank application because the bank will have a survey done to make sure for their own financial reasons, the property is secure and, you know, correctly priced to lend against. If you're not um, using bank finance and you're paying money out of your own savings or from other finance, then, yeah, definitely get hold of a professional, again, professional survey company. So when everything kind of checks out and you're happy with it, you would sign the contract of sale in the presence of a, of a notario, a notary, and that's when the full uh, cost becomes due. Absolutely. So what would normally happen is a few, maybe about two weeks before the notary date is set, once you know the lawyer's happy with everything and the, both the lawyers, the seller and the, the buyer's lawyers have had their conversations, um, they're happy with all of the, the process then effectively you'd have to start to, you know, once you've got your mortgage agreed for the final offer, they changed the laws a few years ago. So along with the banks not no longer being able to charge you for some of the things that really weren't, you know, meant to be paid by the person receiving the mortgage, they've also put a 10-day cooling off process in the middle of getting the mortgage. This is a wonderful thing. So effectively now you will get your full and final mortgage offer and then you'll be given 10 days, which you have to take. You don't get a choice to think about it and make sure it's the mortgage you want. 
just a quick bit of history. The reason why this is a wonderful thing is because, and I absolutely kid you not, I've driven five miles to a completion, having had a full and final mortgage offer for my client. And me with my ropey, at best Spanish, sat down, flicked through the mortgage offer on the table in the notary office, and the terms were completely different. And I was like, you have got to be kidding me. And I said to the representative of the bank, this is not what we were told the mortgage terms were going to be. And they went, oh, yes, yes. You know what happened is we looked again at his age and we decided that we needed to make some changes. And, you know, the percentage rates and the early redemption fees, literally, it was a completely new mortgage offer. And, and that's what banks would do to you. And I kid you not, as a, again, as a property consultant, I have on, on occasion, obviously, I had to explain the differences to the arm um, of the buyer. And if he was happy with the differences, I mean, happy not being the right word, but if he was willing to ex- <laughs> them, um, then we would proceed and complete a notary but i've marched clients out of the notary and just told the bank no way not a chance and you know and, and you know i understand notary at a notary you've got the notary public you've got the seller you've got the seller's agent representative you've got the seller's lawyer the buyer's lawyer the bank representative the bank's store so there could easily be six or seven people around a notary table so it's a lot of pressure to tell all those people who've given up their time and some of them driven quite some distance that yeah. you're cancelling the whole proceedings. But if the mortgage, you know, presented on that day was so dramatically different from, you know, basically if I knew that the, the buyer was going to have trouble paying this new mortgage, you know, that suddenly shrunk from 20 years to 10 years and doubled his payments per month. Make sure that the mortgage that you sign off on is the mortgage that you agreed to initially in the bank. <laughs> and that's why this 10-day cooling off period is now a godsend. Because, you know, that, as I said, banks literally, not saying all banks did it, but I, it has happened to me genuinely. And it was something they could do because, you know, they understood the pressure of being at no to everybody there and, oh, OK, we'll just sign it. You know, um, whereas now you've got time to go through it, make sure it's exactly right. And, you know, they have to give you that time. So it was something that effectively the government had seen, knew, you know, was being done by banks and had put something in place to, you know, stop their ability to do that. So that's one of the things that will happen again before you get to no to. You've got this cooling off period if you're getting a mortgage. Make sure you know, you've got plenty of time to check it, get it translated, understand it. And then you say, yep, I'm happy with these terms. We're going to go forward. And as you said, then um, everyone will set their dates. You'll transfer all the, usually all the money that you're paying. So your deposit and your closing costs will all go to your lawyer's client account ready for completion. And then, you know, we'll all meet on a, on a specified and agreed date and time at the notary public and notary which is a super important part. I love notaries, you know, they, they're very well trained. They study like, you know, just as long as solicitors um, to do their trade. And it is their job to check everything yeah. that happens in that transaction and make sure that it's fair for everybody. When I arrived in Spain, I actually think it was like, you know, a little bit of, again, Spanish sort of additional, unnecessary, um, officious administration. <laughs> but now I really appreciate because I've also had a notary look through um, the sales deed and go, no, I'm not happy with this. And send everybody from the table away until whichever party had not given the right information went away and corrected it. The reason that I love that is because there is this very, you know, unfortunate belief. And in some respects, you know, in some aspects, it's fair that buying a property in Spain is something that's more risky than doing it in the UK. Once you get to the notary public, he is going to double check everything that happens before you sign that paper and make yourself responsible for that property or that mortgage or anything. Technically, having bought and sold a lot of property in the UK for myself and my clients, it's actually technically safer to buy in Spain. I suppose a lot of people, whatever country it is, that's not their home country, they have a bit more more reservations about it. But that's good to know. It's true that you, the buyer is responsible for then registering the sale of the property. Presumably you have to do that with the local ayuntamiento, the local kind of city or town hall. Absolutely. Um, two registrations, one one centrally and one locally. Um, again, 
uh, one of the things that we, we allow the lawyer to do is it's all part of what you're paying them the, the one to two percent for and um, they happily get ahead and sort it out it does it's not a, it's not a quick process by the way it mm-hmm. can take up to six months for that to be completed but you know once it's um, underway and being done by the right person no worries the other thing i wanted to ask you is about capital gains tax now i guess normally that only kind of applies obviously if you're if you're selling a property either in spain or back home but again, that's a sort of tax that varies depending on whether you're a resident or a non-resident. There are some exemptions. In regards to capital yeah. gains tax, 90% if you're within the EU, so for Brits, it's going to change um, in January the 1st. And you're probably going to be somewhere under 24% in capital gains tax when you sell. There is a 3% retention which they take at notary. So no one's going to buy or sell a property unless 3% of that full capital gains tax bill is taken. And it's actually the buyer's responsibility that that is paid. So that, so make sure your lawyer is making sure that is reserved. That what the, what the government's basically doing is knowing that non-residents may sell the property and before they get their tax bill, run away to border, border and never be seen. So they're guaranteeing they get a minimum of 3% of the capital gains on that. Because I have one question from a listener said to me, talking about selling their property back in the UK, he said, should I sell my house in the UK before becoming a tax resident in Spain? to avoid the uh, capital gains tax. The sale of your UK property should have no effect on you know anything you do in Spain. But if you have become a Spanish tax resident, then they have the right to um, tax your worldwide. And so as a Spanish tax resident, a Spanish fiscal resident, if you were selling a property in the UK and you had um, you know capital, uh, had a capital gain from that sale, then that would affect your t- tax rate in Spain. Whereas if you're not yet a Spanish um, tax resident, and you can be a Spanish you know um, resident and still not be a Spanish fiscal resident, that's another layer which is why I really advise, you know, getting a tax resident. But I'll say just definitely off the cuff that if you're something that you're buying, you're selling a property in Spain, but you're not yet a Spanish resident, then I'd worry about it less than if you were a Spanish fiscal resident um, paying, Spanish, paying, you know, tax in Spain, you had a declaration um, renta, then that would actually impact it much more. Like you said, if you're a tax resident in Spain, then your tax on your global income is payable uh, here in Spain. The biggest issue with that is anti-money laundering laws. So AML, Europe has been very, very focused on anti-money laundering and anti-terrorism and they brought this new legislation in you know quite a few years ago and a lot of accountants and you know brokers i know and even tax specialists think they've been overzealous with it is the simplest way i can say so i'll give you a quick example i do remember a few years ago i had a client um lovely couple and the lady had inherited her sister's um property when her sister had passed away so she had all of the documentation of probate and, you know, um, then she'd sold the property. So she had full legal proofs of how she'd acquired the property, all the probate information, the resale and how the money got into a UK bank account. And the Spanish bank refused to accept that as proof of her deposit where the money had come from. And she couldn't go forward with her sale. Um, and, you know, admittedly, that was when the new laws came out. And obviously, when things are new and fresh, sometimes people can be a bit overzealous. But the anti-money laundering, anti-terrorism laws, you know, as they um, affect finance are one of the things that you really want to make sure you get right. I've sold a lot of stuff for Americans. And um, one of the issues we've had, or no, I think this probably does depend a little bit on region. It's really familiarity. So here in Andalusia, with a particular bank we were getting a mortgage from because it was a bank repossession. The bank effectively, you know, they know, for example, that in England, a P60 is equivalent to a declaration de la renta. No, they're both effectively the same um, document. And they understand that, you know, for example, your um, your monthly bank statements are the same as your Spanish bank movements. But there was a lot of documents that the American client had, which they didn't really have a, an understanding of, you know, what their Spanish equivalent. So yeah. they... 
required translations for which was like something like 500 pages worth of and you know we've got the american like finance and taxation system and you know um you had a couple of like different kind of mortgages and i-40 like, i don't even know what that stuff was but you know i i'll never forget that that mortgage took a lot longer than the six weeks we normally try and turn them around in <laughs> I think that's right. I think any of those documents you're going to need to get officially, well, I call it um, jurado, a sworn translation of uh, all of your legal documents. Absolutely. Or again, what we t- what we do as property consultancy, which was now a learning for me, was move that mortgage to a bank that dealt with more American clients and had a much better understanding of the American um, income and tax system. And all of a sudden, problem disappears. So right. that's, yeah. you know, kind of the, the experience and the learning that you get you know, once you're working in the system, and that's what we try and, you know, do for our clients is take them away from that horrendous free month experience of, you know, translating things and retranslating things and explaining things to a bank that wasn't familiar with it, to a bank that had very similar rates. But to be honest with you, the difference in the rate more than compensated for the fact that we turned the mortgage around in, you know, six weeks as opposed to three months. Okay, just to round up then, I got a quick few questions from listeners, a bit more specific. I think, you know, a lot of this you've already covered. So I kind of skipped the ones where where we've already covered the points. But someone wrote into me saying, talking really about tenants' rights and fear of squatters. He said it seemed to be a much bigger issue in Spain than back in the US. Ocupas and illegal occupation of properties which are left maybe unattended for part of the year. Squatters obviously exist everywhere. I was amazed to discover that Spain had very similar laws in terms of some of the things that you can do in England. If if a property has been abandoned for 20 years, you can claim it. One of the things I always find interesting is that people assume that so much stuff is different. But if you really dig into the law, actually, a lot of it's the same. Definitely, there has been a problem with occupiers. And this is something I think is... Now goes back to what I was explaining about the great recession of 2008 and it not being a V-shaped curve. You know, the reality of um, economic hardship is people lose their homes. In terms of legality, which is what we really want to look at, they did change the law because of the amount of people who started occupying empty properties. And you can actually get occupas or um, squatters out legally within uh, a six week turnaround. But here is the rub. And this is, you know, one of those things that we have to know. Spain. It's not about the law. It's about the local courts. So, for example, if you have Ocupas in Malaga Central, who has a very efficient court structure, then you are more likely to get your Ocupas out of your house in six weeks or maybe eight weeks than if you have them, let's say, in um, another town like Estepaona or um, San Enrique, where the court system may not be as efficient. Because if the court system isn't efficient, then your occupants could be in there. And that's when you get into the problem of their being um, allowed to stay in your property for six months, 12 months or longer. It's actually the efficiency of the court that makes all the difference. The law is the same. It's quite a good question, I suppose, because I see this a lot in my personal research. Homes that are being sold furnished. Is that something that's made clear up front, like which items are going to be included, furniture and appliances? The listener also says, if you don't want some of the items, can you request that they be removed prior to the purchase or are you just stuck with them? Or if there are pieces of furniture and appliances which are going to be left, but you don't you're not going to use them. Is it common to negotiate a lower price? Great question. Answer to the first part, yes. When you agree the reservation contract, you also um, list the particulars for the sale, which effectively you go through and you list everything that's included in the sale. So if there's furniture included in the sale, then you will list all of that, um, including all the appliances, etc. Very, very important. I've had it happen where clients have gone, you know, after notary, entered their property and the appliances... <laughs> 
be removed. Seriously. <laughs> in that, in, yeah, absolutely. Now, again, you know, not, not um, these aren't things that happen regularly, but I love to give the examples because, you know, that's why you need, again, to have a lawyer. Because your lawyer, quite frankly, just picks up the phone, calls the seller's lawyer and says, my, my clients have just entered the property. They've literally just left notary, had a drink, gone to the property. There's no washing machine, no boiler, <laughs> no dishwasher. You know, but, but the, the lawyer, your lawyer will say, I strongly suggest you call your clients and have them replace them immediately because we're going to take legal action. Another listener said that they're looking to move to Alicante next summer. Um, they're going to rent for a while first, which I think is definitely good advice. Uh, I would say rent for at least a year now to get a real feel for the, for the area and think about where you want to buy. But they said negotiating on price. How much can you realistically negotiate on the asking price? Now, that's a wonderful question because culturally there are lots of things different between um spain and other parts of the world in spain there is a real culture of the price is the price so what i'm gonna what i'm saying is if the seller is a um you know a spaniard my gut instinct and experience is you will have a much lower ability to negotiate a reduction in price um i've experienced over and over again that over here the price is the price regardless to how bizarre the price might seem based on the current economic circumstances so you can imagine in the great recession where prices were falling left, right, and center, some people just ignored that. It just wasn't happening in the price, you know. And the price was pretty much based on probably what I paid for it, and that's mm. what it was. Um, whereas if you're de- if you're negotiating with somebody from you know Northern Europe, England, Germany, um, America, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, the culture is much more used to price negotiation. Now, if anyone's watched The Place in the Sun. I'm so sorry to say because um, I used to think it was just me. So I love sitting down and watching these, you know, TV professionals cringe when they've like spent like, you know, however long finding the perfect property for their clients and well in their budget. And they go, well, we just want to make a cheeky offer. We're going to offer them 35% less than the asking price. It gives me a great kick. Just tune into a place in the sun for a week. <laughs> One of those people is going to clean off a 30%, 35% less than the asking price just because. That's the funny thing. There's no justification. Back in our day, and I'm a negotiator, I'm saying the reason we're going to offer you less money is because based on what my clients want to do, they'll have to change the kitchen. There's some issues with the pool. No, the cheeky offer is endemic in the English um, property lexicon. Somewhere in between the price is the price. And I made an outrageously almost insultive cheeky offer is what you might want to be going with. But it really does depend on who you're talking to. The cheeky offer will literally get you thrown out of the building in a, in a Spaniard seller's home. And the cheeky offer, you know, is, is, is we're waiting for it. Someone says, I've read that financing is not available to those over 65. Is that true? And if so, are there any other options uh, apart from obviously a, a 100% cash sale? Great question. No, it's not true. Financing is open to people up to the age of 73, some banks 71. So you've got a couple more years. For foreign nationals, you're probably only going to get 20 years anyway. One of the things I always suggest in one of the services that we help people structure, because I do a lot of deal structuring you know, as a, an investor, is, you know, if you are a certain age and you can't get the mortgage you want, um, we always say start off by talking to family members who might be interested in coming in on the property with you, even if it's just in terms of sharing the mortgage with you, if they're younger than you, it would allow the mortgage to run for a longer period. So if this person is 65 years old and even with the ability to get a mortgage up to 73, you know, the numbers don't work. They can talk to um, a family member, a younger sibling or whatever, and you know, get them to come on a mortgage with them. And it will, you know, the mortgage age will be placed at the person, at the youngest person. OK, that's good to know then. So 65 is not true. 
I don't know if this is, applies to Spain or not, but like in the UK, where we have what are called listed properties or properties which you're not allowed to change because they're historic in some way or they're in a historically protected neighbourhood or something like that. That's something you will be told when you start inquiring to purchase the property, whether you're allowed to put windows in the roof or things like that. Absolutely. All again, back to your lawyer. And even those that will come up, if it doesn't come up in the preliminary checks and you make the reservation, then again, it will at least come up once you paid your 10% at private contract. And again, that you know, the actual contract, the whole point of that is it will have in it that if certain things you know, are unexpected, that might maybe one of them, that we can't do the renovation, then um, this is no longer uh, a property we can buy and our you know full 10% deposit is returned to us. So again, this is why you know it's not that I'm just trying to generate income for the Spanish <laughs> legal system and, and the uh, abogados. It's because I understand the importance of what they do. A property that has certain you know, restrictions legally, etc., that you weren't aware of, that you can't use the way you want to, is something that you may well miss. And now you're stuck with a property that you can't do the renovation that you wanted to do. Therefore, you can no longer use it the way you wanted to use it. You know, it's, it's not going to give you a return, or you may have effectively lost your money. Um, the other question I've got here is, if you are buying a property in Spain that you're not going to be living in all year round, but you would like to uh, rent it out or you put it as uh, an Airbnb to generate income while you're not there, any local rules that could prohibit you doing this? You have to apply for your property to be allocated to be allowed to use for that purpose, right? Effectively, this is, believe it or not, a new thing that happened in the last couple of years that effectively now you have to register that your property is for rental in a lot of ways, particularly the way a lot of the foreign nationals are treated in Spain. It's been like the wild, wild west. It's been really disgraceful the way a lot of people ignore the laws. They brought this you know, new law in, they've tightened up on it. Now, effectively, if you're um, advertising your property for rental on holidaylux.co.uk or Airbnb, the Spanish government is now scanning those portals. If <laughs> your property being advertised for short-term rentals on those portals and you haven't registered it for tax purposes you are going to receive a big fine and um, if you're lucky enough to have never had a fine um, then that's wonderful but I can assure you Spanish fines in my personal experience again tend to have no relation to the level to which you have contravened the law they like to give you big fines in this country uh, last one I don't know really how relevant this is to be honest but I put it in because it made me laugh it says, what do you do if your neighbor's trees are blocking your view? <laughs> no, that's a really great question. The answer is it's one that I wasn't expecting. You definitely don't get the chainsaw out and go M&M style on that thing. Don't do that um, because, again, there are all kinds of laws. And I'll tell you what, if they're protected pine trees, you won't only be getting sued by your neighbor. You'd have broken Spanish law. And again, we're back to these very extremely high fines. Um, so obviously, you know, it's a funny thing, actually. I talk a little bit about neighbours in, in the book because in all the properties I've bought for myself, you know, investments. And one thing I always say is that you can't choose your neighbours. You hope you find somebody rational and reasonable <laughs> who lives next door. And it's not a bad idea to ring next door and let them know you're buying the property. Um, because, you know, if your neighbour's unreasonable and irrational, it's going to really affect your ownership. You know, you want to knock next door and say, hey, um, uh, you do, are you aware that this is blocking my view and can become some kind of arrangement? I will happily pay for the tree surgeon to come and prune your tree correctly. You know, um, I'll pay for it, but I would just want my, my view. And hopefully you're dealing with somebody who's, you know, amiable 
I'm not quite sure if you actually have a legal recourse to enjoying the view of your property. And obviously, if you live on an urbanisation with the cumulative owners, then you take it to the community committee and your president and allow them to be the adjudicator of the situation. Uh, just one last thing to mention, which I guess is important when you're buying. Of course, in Spain, you will have to pay. Um, well, I believe you can pay it year, uh, yearly or quarterly. I can't remember, but depending whether you have a, a, a house which is detached or has its own uh, ground or whether you're buying an apartment in a in a block of, of apartments um you're gonna have to pay basically effectively like uh, what we call in the uk a council tax uh, every year so you're paying a tax to the local what to the government um for that property i can't remember what it's called the eb i think isn't it for, for property owners ibi mm-hmm. i guess also is just based on the size of the property the location of that kind of thing but it's something to be aware of that is a cost you're going to have to pay every year uh, when you buy a property in spain Absolutely. So the long term running costs, as you said, are the EB, which is, as I said, in, compared to the UK, equivalent to the council tax property, um, you pay the local ayuntamiento. And then you'll also pay another thing called basura, which is effectively for the rubbish collection. Those are the questions that you're going to want to ask. If you want an urbanisation, you will also pay some kind of community fee. Community fees are a little bit like service charges if you've ever owned an apartment in the UK. There's normally a management um, company for, you know, uh, an apartment in the UK and they charge you, you know, uh, a management fee. Um, so, you know, community fees are actually very important as well, because depending on how your community is run, it will depend on your fee. And, you know, it can be prohibitive. I have had amazing knockdown battles with communities. We're talking about the, the the group of residents who live within, uh, you know, uh, a certain plot of land or a block of flats or something like that. We're talking about the community of residents. Exactly. So the simple example yeah. would be, you know, if you know a block of flats in the UK, a private block, what happens in Spain legally, based on the horizontal property law, you have to. It's not a, it's not an option. You ha- um, The owners have to get together and create a, a committee called a community of owners. And it has a president and a treasurer and et cetera, et cetera. And their job is to... Um, you know, manage the block of flats and, you know, the, the costings for everything uh, involved. So as I sit here on a beautiful sunny day in Andalusia, just 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 saying. <laughs> Rub it in. <laughs> with the sun beating on my face. And I look out at the beautiful gardens and the community pool and, you know, the, the palm trees, all of the, the cost and the maintenance of that is managed by the community of owners, which has to be made up, has to be made up by people who own properties in the urbanisation. And they are assisted by uh, what are called community assessors, who are effectively like historians, they're like lawyers um, who know the laws of the country. When those two bodies come together and they work together um, in union, then your community runs like clockwork and it's wonderful. Your pool is always open for the summer. You have socoristas, you have like, you know, lifeguards there for the months that you need them. The, the gardens are watered, the, um, the gardens work, the maintenance people are there, you know, to um, take care of any problems and it's wonderful. Mm-hmm. And when they don't work um, well or if they're corrupt, it's atrocious. Um, I've had a few run-ins with the latter. Investing the money and not spending it on any maintenance. We have had community owners caught with their hand in the cookie jar, um, you know, effectively stealing from their neighbours. It's horrible. And, and putting community fees really high. The problem with community fees being high is it's prohibitive to you selling your property. Where I am, you know, when we first invested, there were like two-bedroom apartments. And one of the um, Spanish owners you know, was fi- trying to fight this corruption pointed out that Villas in Marbella, that, you know, he knew this wasn't sort of, you now I guess, he'd been to Villas in Marbella, which had lower community fees than two-bedroom apartments in the urbanisation. 
And it was really based on the fact that everyone had their hand in, in the cookie jar. Felix, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for all your time. Now, thank you for having me and allowing me to talk so in depth because I love to give examples to make things real, not just give facts yeah. and figures. Uh, because it's a real journey and the things when it's done right, believe me, it's the best thing, not just for you, the buyer, but for your whole family. My my biggest joy selling property here is seeing the cousins and the aunties and the parents who come and use the property as well as the money you make on a rental. So it's the most amazing thing yeah. that you're doing for your whole family lineage if you buy a property overseas, particularly in somewhere as beautiful as Spain. That's why I want to help people do it right and, and give them all the warts and let them know the real things to avoid um, you know, so we can get them to have that whole process being done successful. So I really appreciate you letting me you know, really get in depth. It's uh, one of the biggest things you'll do in your life, sell up and relocate and buy a property in, in Spain. So there you go. A lot of information to digest. Uh, Maybe re-listen again with a pen and paper. I hope we didn't miss anything too important out. Just to say that Felix, as he mentioned, uh, has his own uh, website specifically dedicated to buying property in Spain. And the website is, quite simply, howtobuyapropertyinspain.com. Couldn't be easier to remember. If you're interested in getting your hands on a copy of his book, How to Buy a Property in Spain, you can find that on Amazon. And Felix also has a Facebook page as well. Of course, I'll drop links to all of this in the show notes of this episode. So from a very chilly and uh, defrosting, thawing Madrid, I shall leave it there. I'll be back next week. Don't forget, if you do enjoy the podcast, please do consider signing up to become a patron. And if you can't do that, um, I would really appreciate it if you could leave a little review of the podcast on the platform where you listen. Uh, Give us a like and a follow. And also don't forget to check out the When in Spain uh, Instagram account, uh, which is When in Spain one is the handle if you want to see amazing photos of madrid buried in snow go and check out the instagram account and the facebook as well and the when in spain website which is when in spain podcast.com until next week stay warm stay well and oh happy new year by the way i think this is the first episode of 2021 thank you for listening until next week hasta luego